Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. And the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those to you so that you can follow along. It's our gift to you. Keep it and bring it back uh, each week as we look at God's word together. 2 Peter chapter 1. J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the pastor of a large church in North Carolina. He's written a book called Jesus Continued, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. I don't recommend the book for reasons I'm going to explain. In it, he takes pains to say that the Holy Spirit always works in conjunction with the Bible. That's good. He rightly says, quote, we cannot experience the Spirit apart from the Word. But he then goes on to cite passages that I hope to show actually belong to the apostles who wrote the Word. And he applies those to all of us generally. He asks, quote, how do I know when the Spirit is moving in me? And then he tells a story to show how it works. He recounts being a teenager in what could have been a serious car accident. And he says, the car barreled off the side of the road into a 20-foot ravine, landing upside down. How any of us survived is miraculous. The crash mangled the car, crushing it in places. Every one of us walked out of the wreck without a scratch. As I related the details, my mom asked me what time this had all gone down. I told her 521 in the morning. Because when I had been jolted awake by the car landing upside down, the digits on the clock were the first thing I saw, though they looked like 12 colon 5. She told me that she had awakened at 5 that morning with an inexplicable urge to pray for me. She prayed for me for about 30 minutes, for God to work in my life, to get my attention, to protect me, and to perfect His will in my life. At 5.30, she went back to sleep. Now, it appears that the inexplicable urge is explicable to J.D. because the Spirit spoke to his mom in some way. He says, quote, I believe it is clear that God does speak in our spirits. Now, I bring this up because it's been my observation that Christians like J.D. Greer, who rightly believe that God's revelation of himself and of his will are found in the Bible... And also that we can't replicate that so that revelation is confined to the Bible. They nevertheless find other ways to have the Holy Spirit, quote, speak to our spirits. I've heard this kind of language my entire Christian life. That the Spirit speaks to us or I was led by the Spirit to do some definitive thing. Or some other form of soft revelation that tries to maintain the uniqueness of the Bible, but still in some way has God communicating to us outside of it. I've heard these understandable, but I believe false ideas, not only of the Holy Spirit, but of angels and of demons as well. And so I've decided to do an at least five-week topical series titled Myths That Christians believe in these areas. I'm doing this topic for the reason that I gave, but I'm doing it now because we concluded our study of the book of Habakkuk last Sunday, 
And I can't start a new book study now because five of the next nine Sundays are either holidays. We'll have an Easter message next week. A few weeks after that is Mother's Day. A few weeks after that is Father's Day. And we're going to have two guest speakers in between, one for Laney's graduation two weeks from today from Eastern Michigan. It's on a Sunday morning, so our family will be there on that day. And we'll have um, we'll have Brother Kyle Dunham with us that day to uh, speak for us. And then also uh, for Laney's uh, wedding, Clay and Laney's wedding on June the 1st, that following day, June 2nd, our associate pastor Matt Owen is going to be here. And I've asked him to preach for us. So the schedule's just too choppy to start a new book study. So we'll be looking at this topic over at least the next five weeks. Now from the outset, let me say that as I seek to correct what I'm convinced is a misunderstanding of the Spirit's work by J.D. Greer and by many, I am not saying, I'm not saying that God is not actively at work in our lives. The Bible is clear when it says, for instance, It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So God is at work in us and he's at work in us for us to will, that is to desire, and then based on those God-given desires to act so that we fulfill God's good purpose. So the issue is not whether God is at work in us. He most certainly is. The question is, hear this, how do you know when he is? And how do you describe it? Today we're going to see some things for us to avoid so that we do not inadvertently come to believe that God speaks outside of Scripture. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for these dear friends who are here, that we could all stand before you in your presence with your word open before us. And indeed, we ask you, speak, O Lord. Speak to us from your word. Teach us from it so that we can rightly understand what you have provided for us, make full use of it in our lives to guide and direct our lives so that we do your will and please you with the lives and the purpose that you have given to us. We ask you then, Lord, to accomplish this through our preaching this morning. and We will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. And we have inserted for you in your program, as each week, an outline for what we'll be looking at. I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it out as yet. And I say, first of all there, that the Holy Spirit has revealed truth. But he's revealed truth to the apostles. Do we have that on the screen, guys? Thank you. And I've asked you to turn to 2 Peter Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, several weeks ago, we had the privilege of having Dr. Mark Snowberger of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary with us. And you may remember that he spoke from this passage. And after explaining the verses that precede what I just read, 
and how Peter recounts his own experience of having seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Jesus' second coming glory. Nevertheless, Peter says that we have a word more sure than even Peter's own personal experience. And that is the prophecy of Scripture. The Greek word is graphe. We get graffiti, graphite from it, the writing. And he says in verse 19, this is completely reliable. This completely reliable word, which is speaking according to verse 20 of the prophecy of Scripture, doesn't mean that the written Scriptures are more true than the spoken words of God to his prophets in the past that we read about in the first part of your your Bible, but that they're more sure, they're completely certain because they've been confirmed for us living in the 21st century. There are thousands of things the prophets said. There are many, many things that Jesus Christ himself said that if they were to be recorded, would not be able to be contained in the books of Scripture. But God has given us these words. He's given us these words in Scripture. These words come directly from God. And so when Peter speaks of the inscripturated prophetic word, that's absolutely certain, completely reliable. He's saying that these words are God's precise words given to us, transmitted from him inerrantly, without error to us. The words of these scriptures are the absolutely best possible thing we could have. The best possible thing we could have. Now I say that, and I wonder if we all really believe that. Because I find many Christians think that they need something more. That they need an experience. And they go from one mountaintop experience to another. And they're not satisfied with the word that the Spirit has given us. And so they must give some explanation of the Spirit's working outside of what the Spirit has told us about His working in His word. Dr. Snowberger asked and answered, why is this book, the Bible, so important to us? Well, Peter goes on to tell us, first, negatively, the Bible does not originate from the prophets themselves, he says in verse 20. So it's not dreamed up in the minds of the prophets. We must be careful as well that we, those who have been given this marvelous gift, as we read it, do not invest Scripture with new meanings other than what the author intended. And the Scripture is not to be reinterpreted to mean whatever we want it to mean. It means that God said what God said and the meaning that God gave is clear as God gave it. It's not subject to anyone's reinterpretation. It's not bound by culture. It's not in need of replacement. It's the best and only revelation available today from the hand of God himself until Jesus comes again. And how is it that the scriptures came to us? They came directly from the mouth of God himself. They are the self-affirming, self-authenticating words of God that no person can honestly say has any other origin other than with God himself. It's true that many suppress the truth that they know in their hearts in unrighteousness, but these words speak for themselves as the very words of God Almighty, the Holy Spirit. This passage says in verse 21, 
that the Holy Spirit carried men along such that the words that they gave were, in fact, the words of God himself. Breathed out, as it were, by God, inspired by God. What a marvelous gift scripture is. The will of God, the words of God that you have in your hands right now as you sit there. So now who were these men who brought the word of God to us? In particular, in the New Testament. We know that God brought his word through the prophets of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. We're going to see that God commissioned specially a group of men to give us his word in the New Testament as well. We call them the apostles. And we want to focus upon the word of God in the New Testament because once those apostles are gone, those books stop being written. There's a reason for that. They were the guys who could do it. So, we're going to look at what I say in the outline in a moment. Some of you have heard the big term uh, cessationist or cessationism. A cessationist is someone who believes that God has ceased, thus the word, doing some things that he did in the first century. That some of those things are not still happening. One of those is the writing of Scripture. That after the apostles completed the work that God had given to them, then the canon, as it's called, of Scripture was closed. And there can be no books of the Bible added to what you have in front of you. The reason for that is the men who were commissioned to do it all passed away. They all died. So the apostles were given this unique ability by Christ To give us the word that we have. And so I say in your outline. The Holy Spirit revealed truth to the apostles. And they were a select group. I'm going to go through a bunch of passages in the Bible to prove that to you. That the apostles were a select group. Distinct from the other disciples of Jesus. Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. All of us are disciples. We're all followers. That's what disciple is. We're followers of Jesus. The apostles were disciples, but not every disciple is an apostle. The apostles were a special select group among the followers of Jesus. Now, how do we know this? We know this for a number of reasons. One is that they were just called the twelve. Now, you know when you're in a group that's just called the Twelve, that needs no other explanation, you're in select company. I have a book on my shelf about the Supreme Court. It's just called The Nine. The Twelve. And so we have that in the Gospels where they walked and were with and were taught by Jesus I'll just give you a sampling of that from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. From Matthew, one of the twelve went to the chief priests. Then Mark chapter 4, the twelve asked him about the parables. In Luke, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. By the way, notice to whom he gives this power. To the twelve. In John, Jesus said, you do not want to leave too, do you? He asked 
the twelve. And then when we come to the fifth book in your New Testament, the book of the book of Acts, after Jesus has ascended back to the Father and he has left them with the mission that he's prepared them for to carry out in his world, the Bible says the twelve gathered all the disciples together. And then further along in biblical chronology, you find the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection of Jesus and the reality of that resurrection. And in chapter 15 that we call the resurrection chapter, he says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and appeared to the twelve. They were known as the twelve when they walked with Jesus. They were known as the twelve after Jesus ascended back to the Father. They continued to be known as the twelve later in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But what about Judas Iscariot? He was one of the twelve. And he betrayed Jesus. He was never a true follower of Jesus, but a false follower. He betrayed Jesus. And then guess what the title of the group becomes? The eleven. Luke chapter 24, when the women came back from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven. And so now there's eleven. And they determined that they should replace Judas Iscariot with a true believer to bring their number back to twelve. And in Acts chapter 1, in fact, that's the way it opens, with Jesus giving final instructions, ascending back to the Father, and now the apostles beginning to carry out the work that's been assigned to them. And the first thing they determined to do was find a replacement for Judas Iscariot. The Bible tells us that here was their criteria. It's necessary to choose one who has been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us. And so the Bible says a man named Matthias was added to the 11 apostles. And then you come to the very end of the Bible, the second to the last chapter of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, where the apostle John is given a vision of the future heavenly city and he's given the dimensions of the city. And then he tells us in a passage where, that's already up there, (laughs) kind of spoils the lead end, but... Uh, But there it is. (laughs) And he's describing the foundation of 12 sides. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so you have the 12 apostles, a select group of people. If someone today claims to be an apostle... That's heady company. If someone claims to be able to do what the apostles did, they're really going to need to prove that. They could write scripture. They could oversee the revelation that God was giving in order to produce scripture. And so the New Testament comes to us because of this select group that Christ commissioned and whose words he pre-authenticated. I say pre-authenticated. I say that because, as we're going to see, the night before Jesus died, he gave them 
special instructions about the power and enablement he was going to give them in order to produce the New Testament that we have. So they were part of a select group, and they had a special mission. They were a select group, and they had a special mission. And to carry out this special mission required special qualifications. Remember I said that they replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias. And they said it's necessary for us to have one who has been with us the whole time. But it actually goes on in Acts chapter 1 to say this. It's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us. Now notice this part. So that he can become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in order to be an apostle, you had to be someone who saw the risen Jesus. So if you're a would-be apostle, let me just say good luck with that. You had to be a witness of his, his resurrection and moving further along in time, the apostle Paul says about him, about himself, one of the things that qualified him to be an apostle was this very thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he asked, am I not an apostle? And then says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The implication is if you've not seen the risen Lord, you're not qualified to be a witness of his resurrection. You're not qualified to be an apostle. So they had a special mission that required special qualifications. And that special mission included two major things that they were to carry out. The first, I say in your outline, was to establish the church. To establish the church. The apostles were specially commissioned by Jesus to be the the founders of it's his church, but they were the ones to organize it, to establish it, to spread it, to grow it in its initial stages. And that's why Ephesians chapter 2 says this, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, in order to do this, they were endowed with the ability to communicate propositional truth with the intended effect that it would come to us and would be for our use in our day. And so they not only were commissioned to do this special thing, establish the church, but in doing that, They were commissioned as well to produce the scriptures, produce the scriptures. So it's the apostles who could do this. The apostles who heard from God It's the apostles who were these second Peter chapter one, holy men that the Holy Spirit carried along to give us holy scripture. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, met with the twelve. He met with the twelve in the upper room. And in John chapters 13 through 17, we have the recording of Jesus' words, his instructions to them in this upper room that's called the upper room discourse. John chapters 13 through 17 
Five full chapters given to one night. That's apparently a really important night. And we would mostly think of that as important because it's preparatory for what's going to happen the next day. Certainly the events of later that night and the arrest and betrayal of Jesus and then that as a precursor to his crucifixion the next day, certainly that is all of monumental importance. But those five chapters are filled with Jesus preparing the apostles for what he's commissioning them to do. He's preparing them for the fact that he is going to go away. He knows what's going to happen the next day. He's going to be crucified. He knows that three days later he's going to raise. And then he knows that 40 days after that he is going to ascend back to the Father. And so he is preparing now these men with whom he has been the better part of three years. He's preparing them now to take the mission and carry it on. And so he says famously in John chapter 14, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Not there yet. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. I'm just, I'm just riffing here now. <laughs> he says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's, he's now preparing them. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go away. But if I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So he knows that they are going to be fearful, that they are going to be troubled. But then he says later in that chapter, and now on the screen, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Advocate. Now, some of you, if you have your King James Bible, I grew up on the King James Bible, and it said the Comforter. This translation is more accurate. The Holy Spirit is not just one who comes alongside and sort of puts his arm around you, as it were, and comforts you in difficulty. I mean, that's all true, but that's not what this is referring to. But rather, he is the one who Jesus is telling the apostles is going to be a friend at court for you. Because you're going to go out now based on my commission, and you're going to make a case about who I am to a world that doesn't believe it. But do not fear. Before I'm giving you another advocate, one of the same kind. In fact, that's what he says to them. I'm going to give you another. I've been with you physically. I'm no longer going to be with you physically. But you're going to have another advocate who is going to assist you in making the case regarding who I am and what people need. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, with my authority, will teach you all things. And notice, will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Now, there are a whole bunch of reasons why, in this upper room discourse, it is the case that Jesus is addressing specifically the apostles and not every other Christian like you and me. There are a bunch of reasons to believe that that I don't have time now to get into. But here's one, that the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything. Here's one way I know that's not for you and me. We forget stuff. Like, do you have perfect recall? 
Would it be possible for you to write down John 3.16 incorrectly? The answer, of course, is yes. But they had to have perfect recall of what Jesus said in order for them to be used by God to record those words and then expand on those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to give us the New Testament. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to remind you of everything that I have said to you. He goes on in that upper room discourse, does Jesus, to say that in chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. Friends, Jesus was saying that to the apostles. He doesn't guide you into all truth. He doesn't guide me into all truth. He doesn't bring to my remembrance everything that he said. He did that to those guys. They were a select group with a special mission. God revealed his truth to the apostles. Okay. Well, then what about us? Secondly, in your outline, the Holy Spirit has revealed truth to the apostles and he's given truth to us in that word. He's given truth to us in the word that he commissioned the apostles to write. I said earlier that he pre-authenticated them. So that night before Jesus died, he said, I'm going to give you the advocate, the Holy Spirit. You're going to have this ability to do this. And then they were able to do it. And their word is preserved for us in the New Testament. And so now... The Holy Spirit has given truth to us, and that truth is contained in his word. Now, how does that work for you and me? Well, it works this way. First, he moved the apostles to write scripture. He gave them the revelation. He communicated propositional truth about God through them, and they committed it to writing But he did that by moving the apostles to write scripture. I say moved them. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, remember the passage says that these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along, sometimes translated born along by the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word translated carried along or born along is a word that was used in New Testament times of ships that were carried along by the current, a sailing ship carried along by the current of the water. And so the idea here now is that the Holy Spirit carries these men along through their lives so that in God's providence, they experience the very things God wants them to experience. They endure the very things God wants them to endure. They have the personnel, the very personalities that God wants them to have so that when they put pen to parchment, they write exactly what God wanted written. It's not that the Holy Spirit said, as I've heard some preachers say over the year, God said, take a letter. And then he just started talking and they were kind of a secretary writing it down. No, God worked in the lives of these men providentially so they were exactly the vessels God wanted so that they would write precisely what he intended. He moved 
And he moved through their entire lives and he carried them along to his predetermined, God's predetermined destination in the production of Scripture. He moved the apostles to write it so that it's given to us. And then I say, he illumines us to apply Scripture. Illumines us. Now, I use that word illumines. You know, these these, uh, projectors we have up on the ceiling, uh, you buy these projectors, if you ever looked into buying one of those, they're rated by lumens. That's how bright they are. That's how light they are. To illuminate means to turn the light on. So when we say he illumines us to apply scripture, we're saying the Holy Spirit turns the light on. In the mind of the believer. So that what the Holy Spirit has written. Now has utmost significance. To those. Who have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you that from scripture in a moment. But. Just consider this. And please understand this. The Holy Spirit does not give you the meaning of scripture. You know how you get the meaning of Scripture? You work at it. You study it. I mean, there are times when I'm studying it and I go, how cool would it be (laughs) if the Holy Spirit would just sprinkle some wiffle dust on me so that I don't have to go through all that? And the truth is, even an unbeliever can do the hard work of studying the Bible and putting it in its context if they want to. And not only can they, many have. I have commentaries on my shelf that I am convinced are written by people who did not know the Lord Jesus. They're just interested in ancient Near Eastern literature. And they're brilliant. And so they put it in its context. They tell you what it means. They can tell you accurately what it means in a commentary. But the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not that the believer knows what it means and the unbeliever can't know what it means. The difference is the believer cares. It's the Holy Spirit that turns the light on that says, ah, that matters for me. Ah, that applies to me. When 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 tells us Christ died for our sins, an unbeliever can understand that sentence. But no unbeliever cares about that, else they would not be an unbeliever. It's the Holy Spirit who turns the light on and says, that's precisely what I need. I need the work of Jesus Christ. I need to do what the Bible is saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, the person without the Spirit does not accept. In the King James it says it does not receive does not welcome. The same word that's translated accept or receive or welcome is used in John chapter 1 in verse 11 where the Bible says that Christ came unto his own but his own did not receive him. Did not welcome him. Did not accept him. The person without the Spirit doesn't care. And because they don't care, about the things that come from the Spirit of God, they consider them to be foolishness. And therefore, they can't understand the import 
The significance of that, because they're discerned only through the Spirit. It's not that they can't put the syntax and the grammar together. It's that they don't care, and they don't care because they don't have the Spirit. And so, friends, here's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit has given us His Word. He's given us His Word through His holy apostles. He gave them a special mission to carry out. They were a select group of people. Thank God He used them to pen the New Testament for us and to oversee its production. And He's preserved it for us in our day. And now for us, the Holy Spirit has given us His Word. And calls us to study it and calls us to obey it. And he illumines our mind so that we accept, welcome, receive its significance for us. That means you don't need to be looking for something else. You don't need to be looking for something more. God has given it to us in the pages of Scripture. You want to know God's will? It's here. You want to know how to please God? It's here. You read this, you study this, and you apply this in obedience in your life and your circumstances. And so, friends, as your pastor, I want to talk about these myths over the next few weeks because I hear these things from well-meaning folks. My concern is that if we think the Holy Spirit behaves in ways that he has not promised outside of his word, then it's going to take us away from his word. And so let us appreciate and extol the revealed will of God given to us in his word. Here's your take-home truth. The Holy Spirit communicates to us this way in his written word. Let's bow together and thank God for it. God, the Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you have done in giving us the scriptures. We thank you for the work that you did in the lives of those that were commissioned specially to provide it for us. We thank you for carrying them along. We thank you for the example of the, for example, the the prophet Jeremiah, of whom our God said, before you were born, I chose you. To be a prophet for me. And in like fashion, you, you, Jesus chose these men, these apostles, to oversee the production of Scripture and carried them along so that they were precisely who they needed to be and where they needed to be. So they wrote exactly what you wanted to supply for your people. So thank you, God the Holy Spirit, for doing this work. We thank you, our God, for caring for your people so that we have this light in darkness and that indeed your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us then to use it that way. And help us not to besmirch the the gift that this is by saying that we need something more. Let us be satisfied in what the Spirit of God has provided for us and the work that the Spirit of God does in us in order for us to carry out your will. May we do that this week. We ask you to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.